Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. We are back for our last installment of the education of Cyrus by Xenophon. Wanted to give a quick shout right at the top to Wayne Ambler, who uh, is the translation that we're using, who wrote the translation, who's also a listener. So hey, Wayne, uh, you can also buy Wayne's book uh, through our website, combatandclassics.org. Everything you buy through our store there, a small piece of that goes to support the show. So uh, what we're going to do to kick off is Jeff is going to give us a brief summary of, and, and brief is very relative because it's a pretty long <laughs> book, a uh, brief summary of book eight, and then Shiloh's going to start with an opening question. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I don't know what's harder, conquering Asia or giving a brief summary of book eight, because it has eight chapters, and it is just full of interesting things. So let me say this. Um, it looks like, to me, the first uh, maybe three chapters have to do with um, the institutions that Cyrus sets up in his uh, empire. Um, So last time we talked about uh, the end of book seven being a kind of figurative return to Persia because he starts setting things up in Babylon in a a way that um, reinstates the inequality that we saw at the beginning in uh, the Persian Republic. Um, But uh, book eight has a literal return to Persia. So after setting things up, in Babylon and in his empire more generally. Uh, We get a nice chapter on a victory dinner, and then we have a chapter, chapter five, about uh, Cyrus's return to Persia, and uh, a chapter about how he sets up the various provinces, satrapies uh, in his empire under uh, subordinate rulers who are supposed to imitate him. A chapter on um, Cyrus's return Uh, to Persia for a seventh visit where he uh, realizes that he's close to death and how he dies. And finally, a chapter about what happens uh, to the Persians um, after Cyrus's death and to his empire after Cyrus's death. Um, And the irony there is that uh, Xenophon uh, repeatedly stresses how Cyrus was called father by his subjects but it is a strife between Cyrus's sons that uh, uh, causes his empire to collapse. And the Persians of today, it turns out, are much worse than the Persians uh, before Cyrus's time and much worse than the Persians uh, during Cyrus's time. So Xenophon reports a kind of uh, terrible decline in the Persian character after Cyrus's rule. Uh, so with that highly inadequate, but at least brief summary, uh, let me pass it over to Shiloh. Yeah, I think, you know, as Jeff said, this is a very hard nut to crack. It's such a long and rich book with eight chapters. But I think um, maybe the best way into it is just to ask the following question. Is Cyrus happy at the end? What, what was all of this for? And is Cyrus happy? And there's a few different ways um, to get into that. We can talk about um, Cyrus's death. We can talk about um, the way he hands the empire over to his sons. We can talk about the institutions that he sets up and the kind of life he leads after um, he goes off of campaign. And then I also think at some point um, readers should reflect and maybe we should reflect back to the very first episode when uh, we had read in book one, chapter one, that Xenophon promised to tell us, quote, whatever we have learned and we think we have perceived about him, we shall try to relate. 
what did we learn? I point out that Xenophon returns to the first person plural in chapter eight again. He says, we, 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 uh, sorry, in book eight uh, again, all the time. So uh, what, is Cyrus happy? And, and what were we supposed to learn from this book? Well, I think that something I was surprised about, because, you know, again, I'm, I'm reading this for the first time. And so you guys were kind of dropping all these kind of little like, oh, wait till the end. Oh, it gets weird. And I was expecting like something like Howard Hughes meets Conan the Barbarian kind of stuff going on, <laughs> like Cyrus locked in a palace with eunuchs and just like, you know, drinking mead out of the like skulls of his enemies. And he just goes home, says hi to mom and dad, gets married, has some kids and dies. And it's like, man, I was, I was really expecting some extra weird stuff to go on here and there's there's some like little weird stuff here but i was expecting like super weird so to to the question of is he happy i think that i don't know if he himself is happy but i think he might be happy with himself if that makes sense because he's set out to do what he he's accomplished what he set out to do which is basically to conquer the world and he's not a dick about it you know, like he doesn't really, it doesn't seem like he lets it go to his head to the degree that he could. And so maybe he has reached this kind of pinnacle of um, human power and not lost his mind and is a, you know, relatively likable and just ruler. And the fact that he could pull that off, that he had the ability to not be tempted by power to, you know, have a, a million concubines and to go and conquer more and more and more. Like he just hits, you know, takes over Babylon and goes, okay, I'm good. So I think that, again, he might not be like individually happy, but he might be happy with the way that he has gone about doing what he's done. That, that distinction makes a lot of sense to me, Brian, especially because it is almost exactly what Cyrus says about himself. And there's also a little uh, place where Cyrus explains why these strange Howard Hughes extravagances actually don't happen. So could I ask you, Brian, uh, if you wouldn't mind, would you uh, read out loud from chapter seven? This is on page 269 of the Ambler translation. And if you could read from uh, parenthetical number six through to the end of the paragraph, it's a little long, but this is the speech, this is the beginning of the speech that Cyrus gives to his sons, his friends, and the per Persian magistrates when he thinks that his death is close. And I think it's going to give uh, exactly what you're talking about, Brian. Sure. My sons and all my friends who are here, the end of my life is now at hand. I know this clearly for many things. When I die, you must say and do everything about me as about one who was happy. For when I was a boy, I think that I enjoyed the fruits of what is believed to be noble for the boys. And when I was a youth, those for the youths. And when I became a mature man, those for the men. As time went forward, I thought that I recognized my power to be always on the increase, so that I did not ever perceive even my old age to be weaker than my youth. And I do not know that I undertook or desired anything that I did not obtain. And I beheld my friends becoming happy because of me and my enemies enslaved by me and my fatherland, which before lived privately, I leave now as foremost in honor in Asia of what I acquired. I know of nothing that I did not preserve. And throughout the past, 
I fared just as I prayed I would. Yet a fear accompanied me that in the time ahead I might see, hear, or suffer something harsh. And it did not allow me to think so very highly of myself or to take extravagant delight. Now if I die, I shall leave you alive, my sons, you who the gods granted to be born to me. I leave my fatherland and my friends happy. Consequently, how should I not justly obtain for all time the memory of being blessedly happy? Yeah, so he says both things that you said. Treat me like somebody who's happy because I deserve to be happy, but I was afraid all the time, and that kept me from really enjoying myself or being extravagant at least. Yeah, I mean, it, it occurs to me what he's saying here is, you have to say about me that I was happy. He doesn't say I was happy. This is in a way what you're pointing out. He says, um, you must say and do everything about me as one who was happy. Um, that's a very complicated way on your deathbed of saying, I mean, I would just say if I was dying, I'd be like to my wife, you know, I was happy. It was a great life. I would be like, now you must say about me. <laughs> so um, there's something complicated going on here indeed. What do we think he means by a fear that he would suffer something harsh? Yeah, it's funny because you could think that his life has been full of harshnesses on some level, right? Always campaigning, uh, always having to work, stay one ahead of, of greater forces, at least early in his life. But doesn't he mean something like... Um, a terrible reversal, like the one Croesus underwent, right? Where you thought you knew what you were because you were succeeding, and then events taught you that you didn't know yourself, or at least made you think you didn't know yourself uh, because you had a sudden failure, a sudden setback. It looks like he's claiming that he lived, I mean, this is striking to me, he lived his whole life in fear that that would happen to him. And for me, that points to some... Um, worry about or confusion about what the gods are capable of. So you have in mind, he was scared um, of fortune. The, is this what you have in mind? Um, that, he, that a reversal of fortune might occur, uh, that, uh, to put this in Machiavellian language, that his virtue couldn't overpower. Yeah, that's my sense. Yeah. What, what if his fear was that he would become unvirtuous? Yeah, I mean, it had the effect, this is the thing that he does say explicitly, it had the effect of keeping him virtuous, right? So it kept him from extravagances, from these scenes that you were expecting, Brian, that don't really uh, get given to us at the end of the book. Um, and so, yeah, it seems reasonable to think that, um, you know, if that fear weren't there, he would have let himself go. And that might be his diagnosis of the other rulers, like what he would have said about Cyaxares, for example. They didn't feel the fear, and so they let themselves go. And I think that has to mean that he doesn't really uh, admire virtue for its own sake, uh, which we've seen from the beginning of the book. Even though he's tried to reinstate some sense of the uh, necessity of virtue and of law at the end of his rule, it looks like he has to be doing that grudgingly. Right. In other words, he thinks it's necessary for him to hold on to power to get a succession of the sort that he wants to have his uh, sons inherit a stable empire. But his heart's not really in it. He doesn't really think uh, it's a good idea. He's just afraid. I wonder if um, 
if we looked at what he says to his sons, just on the very next, in the very next paragraphs of, from what Ryan just read, it would deepen this. And I have in mind in particular, because what Jeff's trying to get at is the character of Cyrus's, if there's an unhappiness or a pain, what is the character of that? And Cyrus mentions that, um, or at least he alludes to that when he gives the kingship to his son. Um, so he, he, his eldest son, Cambyses, this is on page 270, he gives him the kingship, the, the entire kingship. And then he has a younger son, Tenaxeres, and he gives him the Medes, the Armenians, and the Caducians, who are arguably the best people, by the way, the, the, original, uh, you know, the original members of the band, as it were. <laughs> um, and so, but then he says something very interesting. One of the most, I think, interesting well, remarks in the whole book, um, he says, in giving these things to you, I believe that whereas I bequeath a greater empire in the name of king to your elder brother, to you, I bequeath a happiness more free from pain. Well, that indicates um, that his brother will have a happiness that's not free from pain and that Cyrus knows that very well and that he's been in pain some. Um, and then he says, um, I do not see in what sort of human delight you will be lacking. To the contrary, everything that seems to delight human beings will be at hand for you. He doesn't say this, of course, about the, the king. As for loving things that are hard to accomplish, for being anxious over many things, for being unable to be at peace because you are goaded to compete against many deeds, for plotting and for being plotted against, these things must of necessity accompany the king more than you. And these, be assured, provide many interruptions to the leisure needed for taking delight. And so it's, you know, Cyrus, we talked about last time how Cyrus got all the way to Babylon, took it over, and then realized he didn't have any leisure. And, and his friends realized they didn't have any leisure. And here again, he points in the direction of leisure is that uh, by, by which uh, that thing by which delight is produced. And he says that the elder king will be in pain. It's worth pointing out that Xenophon was himself a political man of leisure. And it's, I suspect that Xenophon is reflecting on his own choices here. Um, Xenophon was a man of leisure in the sense that he wrote books. He didn't go out on campaign or rule his entire life. And of course, his great teacher Socrates was a man of leisure. And so I wonder if, in an odd way, Cyrus, you know, I've said this whole, the whole podcast, there's something that, about Cyrus that's miseducated or uneducated or that's missing, that's Socratic. And I wonder if here toward the end, again, he's on his deathbed, Cyrus begins to see or sense um, or, or perhaps even regret um, that the delight, whatever the kind of delight uh, that can come through leisure for a gentleman is, uh, he never had. And this is the source of some pain for him. And it's puzzling to me that his um, way of addressing this um, seems to be to try to split himself into two, right? In other words, to have two children and to uh, section off the uh, part of his life that is like um, his own life and bequeath that to his elder son, uh, to Cambyses, who has the same name as his father. And I do think that that's significant too. It indicates to some extent his hope that uh, this is gonna be a conservative, law-abiding, pious ruler. Um, and section off the other half, the, the part that he didn't get, somehow uh, being able to give that to his second son, uh, presumably he can enjoy this because he's gonna be under the protection of the first son. 
right? Um, although he does, as you point out, Shiloh, nonetheless give him the three most powerful uh, peoples in the coalition, it looks like Cyrus might also be envisioning that the younger son has to defend himself from the elder son. And if that's true, then I don't see how he's succeeded in making the split of the, as it were, the business from the pleasure, right? Or the politics from the leisure uh, in order to secure some leisure in his own soul. So this, this is a very odd move uh, to my mind. Yeah. And this, this conversation um, and this odd move, uh, this leisure, I think it would tie back into something, Jeff, that you're interested in, which is the Feralis um, uh, conversation that takes place. This is a man, um, and, and we should continue to talk about Cyrus's death. Obviously, it's very significant, but I would just point out that there was a man at the very beginning who was said to be a friend of Cyrus, who was a commoner, and when Cyrus wanted um, uh, to persuade the peers that the commoner should be able to join the army, he permitted Feralis to speak way all the way back in uh, book two. And um, today, Feralis is uh, made a wealthy man. He's a, he's a commoner who's been made wealthy, um, but it comes out here that he's somewhat, uh, to, to put it lightly, unhappy. Um, and part of the source of his unhappiness is that he doesn't have leisure because he's now got to manage all of his possessions. He's got to retain the wealth. He says, and I hear, I, I've heard uh, many a CEO mention something similar. Once you get the wealth, uh, Tocqueville, in fact, says this in the Democracy in America, that Americans, they spend their whole life trying to get wealthy. And then once they get wealthy, they spend their whole life trying not to lose the wealth. This is very much different from the British aristocracy who weren't really concerned with losing the wealth. And so here, Feralis is like a good Democrat, um, gets the wealth and then is made miserable by not having leisure because he can't, um, uh, because he has to constantly preserve the wealth. Um, and so I, it's unclear to me, again, what Xenophon's trying to say about leisure, but it seems to me that Cyrus's regrets, um, connect, if he has regrets, connect to Feralis's um, um, observations about his own life. Yeah, and I think we should get into that. There's one thread that I want to pick up, though, about uh, from something that uh, Brian said earlier. Uh, Brian's distinction was something like between uh, thinking, Cyrus thinking well of himself and Cyrus being happy. If I could put it slightly changing Brian's terms uh, to bring it a little closer, I think, to what Cyrus says, uh, between deserving to be happy and actually being happy. And what we've said is that Cyrus uh, essentially grants that he's not happy because he tells everybody, talk about me as if I were happy. Um, but what about this question of deserving to be happy? Do you think that Cyrus thinks that he um, did everything right? and that there's a kind of consolation in that, but that it's not enough. Is that the uh, teaching about this middle ground and the question of, of deserving? I think that there's one line that's interesting uh, right near where we were reading in chapter seven in par parenthetical 16, where he's still talking to his sons. And he says uh, to the younger son, do not then let anyone obey him more quickly than you or report with more enthusiasm for what is his, whether good or terrible, is closer to no one than to you. Consider this too, be gratifying whom rather than him could you expect to obtain greater or by gratifying whom rather than him could you expect to obtain greater things. By helping whom could you receive and return a stronger ally? To whom is it more shameful not to be friendly than to a brother? Whom is it more noble to honor over all others than a brother? It is only when a brother is foremost for his brother can be seized that the envy from others does not reach him. 
And as you know, he's kind of talking about this and I can't help but think back to, uh, you know, his interaction with Cy Xerxes, you know, when like he lies about him and, you know, or lies to the troops saying, well, Cy Xerxes told you to come here. And when they're having like the, the tete-a-tete in the, like in the grove and Cy Xerxes is kind of like weeping because he's like, look at all the things you've done. And, um, Cyrus just is kind of like, what, what do you, I, oh, I did it all for you. I did it all for you, which is also just like not necessarily true. So I'm wondering how, you know, is Cyrus just not aware of this kind of manipulations that he did? And he, and he thinks like, oh, I was being noble. I was being a good person in the moment. Um, or is he kind of counseling his, his children to, uh, or his younger son to actually be uh, true and noble towards his brother as opposed to what Cyrus did with, with his cousin? I, yeah. I, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, I, I, my sense is that he's in despair, frankly, right? That uh, he knows he's giving a, a, a false teaching uh, to his children. He has a bad conscience about it. Uh, but a lot for him, I think, rests on uh, the kingdom uh, being durable after he's dead, because that is going to uh, testify to uh, the view that he was, in fact, happy. And he's very interested in having that view, right? Aristotle has this question, can a man be judged happy after he's dead? And uh, one of the things he points to is, well, if your, your children are ruined, right, we tend to think that uh, maybe that has some bearing on the happiness of your life. Cyrus might be concerned with this very issue, not to mention the question of whether his soul is going to survive after his body dies. Um, you uh, with respect to the question of whether he thinks he deserves happiness, <clears throat> deserves to be happy, it's interesting that when he, t when he's, uh, he, when he realizes he's going to die, he, he immediately speaks to Zeus and he says, um, uh, uh, this is at parenthetical three, I'm not going to read a lot of it, but he just says, um, let my gratitude to you be great because I knew your care and never began to think thoughts higher than a human being should over my good fortune. Uh, he seemed, uh, so he seems to say there, I never thought uh, I was a god. I never thought uh, higher than a human being should about my good fortune. I don't know if that's true, Cyrus. I think that you probably did think you were a god at some point, with the high heels and the makeup and the your judgment now orders the entire world kind of thing. So um, it occurs to me that I think he, he's he's a bit nervous as jeff says um and so he's um saying giving false teachings to his sons and of course saying things about the to the gods which may not fully be the true um but i wonder um jeff whether you think uh that cyrus's teaching about the immortality of the soul uh, is genuine. He seems to say his soul will leave his body, but that that's not the end of him. He's saying this to his sons and he's saying, you know, therefore you need to be good because I'm watching you and the, these sorts of things. And so I wonder why Cyrus volunteers a metaphysics, you know, at the very end of the book, um, 
Um, but, and, and so maybe we could discuss that, but, and, and then another thing I would just bring up to challenge what you just said is that one could imagine Machiavelli reading this book and disagreeing deeply with you, Jeff, and saying he's not at all concerned about his sons. He knows this whole thing's going to pot. He knows he's the most virtuous human being that's ever existed. He's exploited it. He's lived it. Glory. He got it. It's over. It was awesome. Good night. Like, then that's, that's the way politics rolls. And so it's, you know, and Machiavelli, of course, says one should read Xenophon's Life of Cyrus. He does not say the education of Cyrus. And so what Machiavelli's most interested in is the life of Cyrus, which is an awesome, awesome life. And so, you know, uh, he doesn't also say the death of Cyrus. So I just point these things out to you. Yeah. Yeah, well, let me just say something about the, the question of the immortality of the soul. There's clearly a level, I think, in which this is not a genuine question, but it's raised by Cyrus as a defensive measure, right? Essentially, he's saying, I'm going to haunt you. I might be floating around, kids. So, so behave well, treat one another well, because you never know if I'm going to be uh, you know, having my eye on you. But uh, I have difficulty understanding the claim about the fear um, if there weren't also some suspicion that maybe um, the, the chance for a reversal, a genuine reversal that he's not immune to could come even at the end of his life. Um, and so I wonder whether he doesn't have harbor some suspicions that he might live on, there might be some punishment in store for his soul, um, and that it's just not in his power to be absolutely certain that that's not the case. Um, I might try to connect this to some signs we've seen earlier in the book that Cyrus delights at looking at dead bodies, um, that there might be some attempt to uh, try to see if uh, in the people massacred on the battlefield, if there's any indication about, uh, you know, whether that's the end of it or not. Um, I don't know what you would look to see, maybe expressions on their faces or something like that. But, uh, but yeah, that, that fascination seems to me to go hand in hand with, um, a question that is that is uh, very hard to resolve simply and might be unresolved for Cyrus in particular. So I, I definitely want to come back to the idea of the immortality of the soul, but to do one quick terrestrial question, you know, early on when we were talking about um, the Medes and the Persians, we talked about the differentiation between, you know, the Persians were a people under the law and that the law was sacrosanct, but the Medes were a tyranny. And so I'm wondering um, what you guys think, did, has, has Cyrus set up a tyranny or has he set up a empire under the law? Well, the eyes and ears of Cyrus, <laughs> uh, this part where he, everyone's watching, I mean, it's a very um, scary place to live that doesn't, um, the goal of Persia was to make free men uh, the, these people were educated, but they were the, the, the purpose of the education was to free the soul. Um, that, that rule under law is precisely what makes a man free, not ruled by the arbitrary whims of another. And by the end of this book, I mean, Cyrus has, um, there's this chapter, uh, is it chapter three or four of book eight, where Xenophon says, I will now narrate how Cyrus made himself loved which he's already done at least, you know, for the past seven books. And the whole thing is about how he cultivated envy among everyone and how they were all looking at each other's backs and how they all became suspicious of one another and all these sorts of things. So I don't, I don't um, see 
that Cyrus has made um, these people into free people. And in that sense, I think he, it is, um, looks more like his grandfather's, uh, you know, rule than his father's rule. By the way, that, uh, that remark about pitting uh, folks against one another, pitting the nobles or his friends against one another and making them envy one another as a way of kind of keeping them under control uh, has a, a connected detail that points back to this question of whether Cyrus considers himself a god contrary to what he professes right before his death. It's a very nice detail, but in chapter four in the symposium that happens uh, with Cyrus and his friends to celebrate their victory, there are these uh, joking comments going back and forth. And uh, it's clear that Cyrus has sat his friends in a way that's meant to indicate their favor with him so that they're ranked. And one of his friends is upset by the injustice of his seating position. And so he says to Cyrus, Cyrus, is there anything I've done, any way that I've fallen short in uh, obeying you? And Cyrus's response in Greek is a word, euphemi. Uh, now, euphemi could be translated as hush or, or don't say that or something like that or speak well. Uh, its opposite is blasphemy. So euphemi means don't blaspheme. We don't talk about gods this way. That's what it means. So Cyrus lets it slip. You know, you wondering whether uh, you haven't served me adequately is blasphemy because I'm a god. And that, that, that person's reaction, uh, they have a, a, a comical conversation. But then, as I recall, that person's reaction is, oh, I see, I should have clapped like a monkey for you and danced and these kinds of things. And I think that this really answers Brian's question. I mean, if the, if the people feel that way, if the, these nobles feel that way about Cyrus, they don't feel like free men. They don't feel like, you know, um, people who are ruled under the law. They feel like they have to dance and sing to make the, the, the big man smile. I, I think Chrysanthus really puts his hand or his finger on this in a very quiet way uh, in a speech he gives. It's around uh, page 234. I'll just read it. He just says, you know, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do now. And he says, um, this is at, at parenthetical four, um, with respect to the question of the kind of rule Cyrus has, um, he says, uh, we need to be different from slaves in this, whereas slaves serve their masters involuntarily. If in fact we think it right to be free, we need to do voluntarily what appears to be most worthwhile. And so he's saying in a way, um, I would just point out, he returns to the language of the voluntary and the involuntary from um, uh, the love chapters. And he says, we need uh, slaves serve their masters involuntarily. Now, of course, Cyrus thought love was involuntary. And in a way, what you see in this chapter is Cyrus doing the best that he can to make it such that everyone in the empire loves him involuntarily, not voluntarily. And in that sense, I think what Xenophon is saying is that Cyrus was always under the impression that all kinds of love were involuntary. And so he takes steps as an emperor to make the political love for him involuntary. And, but in order to do that, that requires slavery. You have to enslave everyone. And so in a way, what Cyrus misses is that we affirmed back in our conversation about love that erotic love has an involuntary component to it. He seems to have understood that. What he never understood is that political love, unless you're going to reduce everyone to slaves, 
is voluntary. That's why president's approval ratings a week after they elected go down 30%, uh, you know? And so this is something that Cyrus, I think, has to grapple with is that he's trying to transform, in a way his politics are this, he's trying to transform um, the rules of political love into those of erotic love. And those two kinds of loves are different in character. And so he tries to make involuntary what is voluntary political love. And this may well be why, if you recall, um, there was a remark made about Cyrus being like a bee, a king or queen bee. And it was said at that point that the bees love their ruler voluntarily. And I pointed out that this was a mistake. It's involuntary among the animals. Um, But even that person realized that politics, political love was voluntary. And Cyrus never knew that. And so he has to enslave everyone. Well, it sounds, as you're talking there, Shallow, about the nature of voluntary and involuntary love, I'm thinking also of, you know, the, the, the way that Persian culture was very similar to Spartan culture as we understand it, right? And that deeds, not words, were was a common aphorism in, in the kind of the, smart, the Spartan aphoristic lexicon. So if we looked at the deeds of Cyrus and how he treated people, um, if you were his friend, then and you you sacrificed to him, you you gave him you gave him the tithe, you gave him the bounties of your uh, of your labor, um, you were rewarded, right? And if you were his enemy, you were punished, right? I mean, what else does that sound like but a god? So even if he was saying in his words that he wasn't a god and maybe letting it slip out that he thought it was, he was certainly acting like a god. And so maybe we can expand the idea of um, political love to the idea of a theological love. You know, as a god, you basically say, like, love me or else. You know, that might be in the terms and conditions at the bottom of the page. It might be, you know, look at all these advantages that I give you as a god. Um, But still, there's an or else there at the end that makes a theological love um, when there is a threat implied. Um, you know, it makes it involuntary. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to um, kind of put a harsh uh, punctuation mark at the end of your comment, Brian, but it seems to me like uh, we're entertaining a notion something like this. If gods um, are powerful, much more powerful than human beings, and they're involved in rewarding and punishing human beings, then they're indistinguishable from tyrants. Right. In other words, on the one hand, they have the power to make human beings appear to be happy, right? Like Cyrus claims he does with his friends, but the cost of that appearing to be happy looks like it's uh, slavery, right? Uh, maybe invisible, maybe uh, internal, but slavery nonetheless, right? Involuntary behavior, and that's a that's a um, a very harsh and hard-headed teaching about what it would mean to have a God who rewards and punishes human beings. Yeah, good times. Let's talk about the two cloaks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, Do you guys want to flip to Feralus in chapter three and try to tease this out a little bit? Because, you know, Jeff, you mentioned before the recording how we were seeing... uh, a lot of uh, twinsies, a lot of dualities 
in characters and events and in everything else. And so now we have this two cloak thing, which I'm sure you want to talk about Jeff because Rousseau talks about it. And <laughs> so you've, you've probably got something in here, but it, it just, it seemed, this seemed from a, if I was like a literary critic um, for Xenophon, I'd be like, why did you drop this? This doesn't seem to fit. I get, I get you're doing a callback. I get you're doing, you know, we're going to put the two cloaks thing in. We're going to keep this idea of duality in. But this example with Feralis uh, gave me a little bit of trouble. So I was wondering if you guys might be able to help me try to understand maybe why this, you know, second appearance of the two cloaks um, shows up here on like page 247. I can take a stab at it. You guys can tell me whether it makes some sense to you. There, there are two main um, anecdotes involving Feralis, right, in, in book eight. The first is this one about the cloaks. So Cyrus is going to have a great procession. He wants everybody to be dressed splendidly. And he assigns Feralis the task of um, arranging and decorating the procession. And so he gives him this big pile of beautiful cloaks that he's got to go around and distribute. And Feralis uh, gets made fun of, you know, oh, Feralis, you must be really um, powerful with Cyrus, must be really influential and favored because you got this big stack of cloaks that you're delivering. And Feralis kind of retorts and says, no, I'm not really uh, that powerful. I'm not really at leisure doing this. Uh, just take whatever cloak you want, right? And then the second anecdote is that um, Feralis uh, ends up coupled with uh, this young uh, Sakian, who has won a horse race and has asked in reward for his race uh, to get the gratitude of a good man. And there's this very funny scene where he throws a clod, a piece of dirt, because Cyrus says, oh, just throw a clod anywhere. You'll be sure to hit a good man. And he hits Fraulis, who is zooming by like a madman because he's so busy fulfilling Cyrus's uh, wishes. So I guess here's my stab. Um, Fraulis looks to me like a kind of mini Cyrus. Um, he could have been like Cyrus, except that he was born into the poor classes. He wasn't the son of the king. Um, and I do mean to bracket that a little bit because he's not uh, the product of a Median and uh, Persian upbringing, but still he's a, he's a kind of noble soul uh, who began in bad circumstances. And he proposes at the beginning of the book that uh, goods be uh, kind of distributed among the army on grounds of merit. So he's a big defender of the principle of merit because he thinks he merits a lot. Um, and here he is, he's busy, he's got no leisure, he's kind of grumbling and resentful. And he just says, oh, take whatever cloak you want. He explicitly renounces distributing things on the basis of merit. And so the stab is this, Feralis looks like a guy who's been broken by his success and who figures out a way to try to get out from under. And he does it through this weird marriage with this young Sakian kid where Feralis gets to acquire and the Sakian uh, occupies himself with preserving. So that's my stab, what do you think? I feel like that makes sense in terms of a character study of Feralis. I still don't get the two cloaks thing. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I like the fact that um, there is that take whatever cloak you want thing, which basically is a bit of the opposite of what Cyrus did early on, right? Where he assigned the cloaks. So Feralis sees this problem of which cloak fits who 
and you know maybe because he's a commoner has a uh, a different idea of how wise he is and doesn't think that he knows what's right for everybody and so just says just take the cloak you want to take like here um but but just it's just that line that line throws me off and this happens a lot of times when i'm uh reading because i've been doing too much like editing lately of other people's works and so i'm just always like oh you know you use three r words in that sentence so we got to get rid of that (laughs) because there's too much um there's too many r words and so like I'm, i'm there with this two cloaks thing i'm like xenophon buddy like this this would have been like the google docs comment of you know if xenophon asked me to edit this was like hey man you're doing this two cloaks thing again and i'm not getting it so like i need you to kind of like either just cut it or like i need you to kind of tie it back a little bit more um to what you were talking about before because rousseau thinks this real is really important and don't so don't let don't let jean jacques down you know could Um, it be could it be some um Com- quiet comment on the lawlessness of Cyrus's regime. I mean, and you know, it's uh, because the principle for Alice employs is not um, do what the law says, which is the big boy gets the big cloak and the little boy gets the little cloak. It's also not do what a wise man thinks is fitting, which is based on the judgment of a wise man. It's whatever anyone wants to do, they do. Do what you wish. And that's the worst of the three, <laughs> the three possibilities politically. And so in a certain way, it's that, and, and presumably this has come about as a consequence of an education provided to Feralis by Cyrus. You see what I mean? And so this is what in the best man, when the best man, the best nature is exposed to the education of Cyrus. And when I say that, I mean the education Cyrus provides of which there is one. This is how it turns out. And, and, and this would go, one could confirm this or at least suspect it's true because uh, within hailing distance of these remarks, of Feralis's remarks, Cyrus says that he made his friends happy. And here we have a friend who is saying out loud, I am not happy. I was happier before, he seems to say. I was happier being a baggage carrier without all of this responsibility. And so there's a sense in which Xenophon is saying not only does Cyrus ruin the best natures, perhaps, or maybe that's going too far, but leave them uh, telling their, their charges to do whatever you want. I got, I'm too busy. Um, he also um, makes Feralis's soul deeply unhappy. And I think that this is played out in a very cute literary way because when Cyrus tells the man to throw the clod and you'll hit a good man, he throws the clod. And then when we find Feralis, his chin is bloodied and his teeth are missing. And he's been, and so he, Cyrus hasn't done him a favor, but he just got hit in the face with a rock. You know what I mean? And Cyrus was like, it'll be great. We'll give this great horse to someone. And so Feralis is just the whipping boy uh, for all of Cyrus's goodwill gone gone wrong. Well, I think I think one other thing that occurs to me as you guys are talking is, you know, Feralis isn't in front of Cyrus as he's handing out these cloaks, right? And so something that we maybe learn is that when the tyrant, if if you live under a tyrant, the second the second the tyrant turns um, his back on you, you're gonna do whatever you want because you don't have that possibility when you're you know sitting right next to or standing right next to or have the eyes of the king on you but there is perhaps a um a natural part of human existence that 
if you are uh, controlled by someone else, then the second you get out of his control, you rebel against whatever it is they were telling you to do, whether it was just or unjust doesn't matter. It's just because they demanded your involuntary love and obedience when you were in their sight that the second you get out of their sight, um, you want to rebel against that as much as possible. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the number of carnivals and pre-Ramadan festivals I've been to um, where it's like, okay, no, we get an Ali Ali oxen free right now. Um, so we're just going to do whatever we want. And so I wonder if maybe Xenophon is kind of pointing at Feralis here and going like, you know, the second he was out of Cyrus's control, um, he was going to rebel against either the law or, or what was just, as you kind of put it, Shiloh, and just here, just take it. Like, I don't care. Like, I don't care about justice. I don't care about the laws because I have to, you know, basically swallow that shit all day from Cyrus. <laughs> so screw that guy. I'm going to do what I want. And by the way, your mention of Carnival is really appropriate. Uh, we didn't get into this last time, but the reason Babylon falls is not only they're able to divert the river and so open up the channel and make it passable, but the Babylonians have one of those festivals as well, right? The Sakea, where uh, they uh, reverse things. So people in high uh, ranks behave as if they're from the lower classes. People from the lower classes behave as if they're uh, from the high classes. And uh, it's the chaos of that event that gives Cyrus the occasion to, uh, uh, you know, release the, the river and, and sneak in and take the city because the city is disordered. So, yeah, this sense that as soon as uh, the clamps are lifted, everybody does what they want. That is a politically significant fact that uh, weakens any society. And as soon as Cyrus's clamps are lifted, the same thing happens apparently to Persia. Which is kind of weird, right? Because as, as we maybe understand the idea of, I don't know, integrity or honor or those things that we consider noble um, and something that was like hammered in your head in the Marine Corps is like, you know, um, integrity is doing the right thing when nobody's looking, right? And so I wonder what uh, kind of system I was living under you know, it, it doesn't, it, that, that doesn't seem tyrannical. Um, it kind of seems like under the law, but it also forces you to decide for yourself and, and, and it asks you to do what you want, but it also says like, hopefully what you want is to do the right thing. Yeah. That seems to me to, to most resemble the aspiration of the original Persian regime right, where each uh, Persian peer would have had something like that inside themselves that would have said that uh, you do these things for their own sake, right? The problem is that once you start to examine that, it's very hard to hold it together, and Cyrus blows it apart. Speaking of Persia, he goes to see his father, um, and it's very awkward. <laughs> and I know Brian, I, we mentioned this, or you were at least interested in this at one other, at one other podcast. I can't remember which, but, uh, he goes and visits his father and, um, it's very, very weird. It's not what you would think of a father not having seen a son, you know, Hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you. It's I'm the King here. And then, uh, he, his father says something like, if Cyrus is alive, when I die, he can have 
Persia. And so it's like Cambyses is already seeing like they're coming for this kid. Like they're going to, he's got a, it's a good thing he has a whole intelligence service because they're, and so in, in other words, it's just a very awkward, um, you know, awkward meeting. And his father sees that this is a dramatically different thing and, and almost uh, engages in a peace treaty with his own son, not hu- doesn't hug him or something. He, he, you know, so. Yeah. When he addresses Cyrus, he says, uh, Persians and my son. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is offensive. I mean, you know, you're not a Persian anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that gets back to like, you know, talking about the education of Cyrus, because as Shiloh made the case in, in book one, or yeah, book one, you know, the only time we actually kind of see an education of Cyrus is Cambyses and Cyrus, you know, looking out on the on the plain in Persia and Cambyses giving him kind of this dad pep talk slash here's how the world works. Um, but it doesn't, Cambyses, I think, sees that Cyrus doesn't know that anymore, you know, that his education is now something else. Because otherwise, if, if, if he had just taken to heart what Cambyses had said that day, then he might have gotten the hug and the feast and the celebration. But instead, it seems like Cambyses knows that something else is going on with his son, that it's somebody that, you know, has changed dramatically since the last time he saw him. And so he has to be on his guard because he's not dealing with his son anymore. He's dealing with somebody that's more like a god. But also, but also looks like his son, so expects him to, you know, on some level, be like, "Do what you told, kid. I'm gonna smack you upside the head." Yeah, yeah. He looks like his son, but he's just a little taller, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> which so, maybe so, because of the lifts in his shoes, which yeah, we get yeah. as another thing in there. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. So should should we conclude by uh, grabbing the bull by the horns and trying to say what we learned from the education of Cyrus, right? Because as Shiloh's pointed out, Xenophon invites us to to ask this question. Um, if, if I had to give my stab, it would be something like this. Uh, we learned that, yes, you can rule human beings the way human beings rule animals. You just can't do it and be happy. Is that true? Yes, and I, and I would add to it and make them happy either. Like they don't, they don't give themselves over well to that uh, method. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would take a stab at something like um, ruling is our our desire to be godlike. That we wish to be, you know, treated like gods, um, and we wish, you know, something around like if we wish to be gods, we have to rule others, but. Even if you, I think, you know, just dovetailing on what Jeff said, if you try to be a God, chances are neither you or, or your worshipers will, will be happy. At least um, they might seem so in your sight, but the second they turn their backs on you, then um, they aren't, they aren't happy. And if, and if they're not there to worship you, then you probably aren't either. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I agree with what all of you say. I mean, I think the most profound lesson that I've learned from the education of Cyrus um, involves love and its relationship to politics and the longing to lead, the longing to be a leader and how bound up that is with um, a psychology of love, which is very difficult to parse and which mingles with the, the follower uh, in the psychologies of the followers and the leaders. But more than that, 
um, the most interesting question and what I'm always left with, or at least the next inquiry after I finish the education of Cyrus is that it makes me more interested in Xenophon the man. You know, some will say that this book points to Socrates. It points to the memorabilia, the other book um, that, that uh, Xenophon wrote, a life of the philosopher as a man of leisure versus the political life. And that Xenophon is gesturing in the direction of the best way of life, which is the philosophic life. But in my view, uh, as a person who's interested in politics and has a kind of political nature, it points not necessarily or immediately to Socrates, but to Xenophon as someone who was able to become or be both Socratic uh, and uh, like Cyrus in his character. He's a mixture of both. And so he wrote a book about himself as well called The Anabasis. And so for readers who are interested in um, what comes next, you could certainly look at the memorabilia, but uh, this book, The Education of Cyrus, to me, points back to Xenophon as teacher to say this, the education Cyrus has or provides is inadequate. Socrates also provides an education which I have. And I can educate you too because I have a bit of both in me. So for those who want to be educated by Xenophon, um, the Anabasis is, is the next step. Yeah, that's good because it's going to um, raise the possibility that these pairings that we've seen, Cyrus, Croesus, and uh, Pharaulus, and the Sakian, and then the two sons of Cyrus, maybe you don't need two people. Maybe you can put it in a single person, and that person's name is Xenophon. Well, thanks, guys. We did it. Uh, the Education of Cyrus by Xenophon. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Shiloh. Um, what, did, what, did you, what did you learn from The Education of Cyrus, dear listener? Uh, you can hit us up on our Facebook page, commentclassics at gmail.com. We're on the Twitters. We're on the Instagram. You can also sign up for our newsletter so you get notifications and new episodes and also other stuff uh, that we like to send out for folks that are interested in this. Um, we put out some friendly podcasts uh, in our last newsletter, some other stuff you might want to listen to. Uh, so check us out. But uh, thanks again, guys. This was a, this was a campaign. And uh, we, have, we have settled ourselves in, in Babylon, and we're just chilling now. So uh, <laughs> we'll figure out what we want to meditate on next. But yeah, thanks again. Thanks, Shiloh, for, for being a guest. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, uh, until next time, Anabasis, huh? Yeah, that's, that sounds interesting. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Take care.